0: I turned to my husband after I had done even more of my research and I said I don't need you to do it with me but I do need your support in it I'd like to try a plant-based diet to help achieve pregnancy and he of course hands down said absolutely anything that you think is gonna help let's do it and three weeks later I had my first ovulation in a year and a half and got pregnant that
1: cycle of the Your Body in Balance series. It's hard to believe that we've already reached episode number seven for this thing, where we're continuing to examine all things related to the new science of nutrition, hormones, and your health. And today we're gonna be examining one of the most common causes of infertility in the US. This is a condition that affects as many as 5 million women across the country, and it's one that so many of you have written in to ask about. Polycystic ovary syndrome, better known as PCOS. It's a potentially heartbreaking condition because no matter how many prayers get asked or how tightly those fingers are crossed, a woman with PCOS just oftentimes cannot get pregnant. And for someone in their 20s or 30s who's hoping to settle down and start a family of their own, having this can be devastating. And they may even begin to wonder, why me? What did I do to deserve this? Well, the answer to those questions, of course, is absolutely nothing. And really, those aren't even the questions that that should be asked, even though You may feel like you're being punished in some way. The questions that really should be asked are, what caused PCOS and what can be done about it? And on today's show, we will be getting answers to those questions, and we're going to hear from someone who has been through it and come out the other side. Allison Tierney, she will be joining me shortly. Here's her story. For as long as Allison could remember her cycle, it was just off. It wasn't regular. And sometimes she would go months. We're talking months and months, almost six months in between periods. And she knew that something wasn't right. And then there was some unwanted facial hair and some acne. But she wasn't putting the pieces together. She had no idea that all of this was related. So as a young newlywed who was anxious to start a family, the fact that she couldn't get pregnant, it was weighing heavily on her. And it was when she was diagnosed with PCOS. That led to difficult discussions with her new husband. For a time, she thought that she was facing the harsh reality of being barren, or at least the extremely difficult process of getting pregnant. She knew it was going to be a daunting task. But then, just like so many others that we've heard of throughout this Your Body and Balance series, Allison changed up her diet, and when she did that, her fortunes also changed. Suddenly, what she thought was impossible, in fact, became possible. And it wasn't long before a bundle of joy entered their lives. So what in the world happened? How did food get those hormones that were causing PCOS? How did food bring them back into balance? Well, Dr. Neil Barnard will be here with the nutrition science behind that. He will be here to explain how those changes brought about that addition to their family and not to mention also helped to clear up Allison's acne. So indeed, in essence... Dr. Barnard will be here to explain how Allison was able to fight PCOS with food. So on today's show, we've got some nutrition science with the side of inspiration, and really, it just doesn't get any better than that. So you ready? Let's get going on our journey now with the incredible story of Allison Tierney. Allison Tierney is an oncology dietitian based in Wisconsin with one incredible story. And Allison, thank you so very much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, You are featured prominently in Dr. Barnard's book, and that is because of your story. And having read the pages that he wrote about you, um, I will start before we actually dive into your story and just say that my heart went out to you.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It means a lot.
1: Your story actually begins, uh, I mean, many, many years ago, uh, back when you were still a a young girl, correct? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I started having issues with my menstrual cycle very early on. And it wasn't actually that surprising because my family all the females had trouble with it as well.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. So this this was just, you were dealt that hand in life with the genes, huh? Yeah,
0: but I don't think it was talked about very much when I was first going through that. I remember the first day that I got my period, I thought something was wrong with me. Even though I had gone through <laughs> all those health classes, I didn't really understand. Um, but then from very early age, it was definitely irregular periods and lots and lots of acne. That was a big problem for me.
1: So uh, acne, I assume you were still in... School at that point, so that's that's got to be a big concern.
0: Yeah, and I was an athlete, so I actually grew up playing boys' ice hockey. Oh, wow. So I wore a face mask all the time. So we always had attributed to being an athlete and sweating a lot and wearing that face mask because I always had the acne right here. Right. And so it was more, oh, it's just because you are so sweaty, you always had that face mask on, and that's what I thought, okay, I'm a teenager and I play hockey with a face mask. That's what the acne is. Right. But then as it progressed further into adulthood, that's when I started to know that there were more problems
1: too. So was acne kind of the, the wake-up call for you? Or when uh, did you first realize that, okay, well, maybe something is actually wrong here and it's not just my family is dealing with this?
0: Yeah, I think I knew what was really something was wrong is when this, the periods were really irregular. So an average woman's cycle is about 28 days. It can go plus or minus a few days. Mine were, I was getting a period about every five months, mm. and that was super inconsistent, but that would be about the average, and then it would last for, instead of three days for the average person, it would last for two weeks for me. So I wow. started knowing that I was having a lot of problems when it came to that.
1: Two weeks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that had to be pretty frustrating.
0: Yeah, and you can't predict when it's going to happen for vacations or anything like that. You just have no idea when it's going to hit you.
1: And you, uh, you, you're you still a, a, a young woman, but I would imagine so as you progress into adulthood, um, you maybe start taking an eye on you want to have children, mm-hmm. correct? Yep. You know, that's kind of you know, every little girl's dream is is they say growing up, you know, mm-hmm. you want to you want to be a mom. So you always thought that that would be in the cards for you.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I never thought that it wouldn't be because my mom has four, four kids, right? And actually have a twin sister. So fertility didn't seem to be an issue. Right? Right. right. <laughs> right. You're the proof, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, so you, you meet a guy right like mm-hmm. and and things progress as relationships do yeah. and you say i do <laughs> L- look at you blushing right now okay so things progress and the relationship's going well how soon after you said i do did you start to try to conceive
0: um so it was Definitely at least two years because we were both students. So ah. we had planned on trying to be out of school before we would start a family. So I always planned that if it happened, it happened. Um, but my husband was in pharmacy school, and then my whole education story is a long one, but I ended up going back to school to be a dietitian, and then getting my master's degree. So I was in school for even longer than my husband was who mm-hmm. went to pharmacy school. So it wasn't until right about graduation for myself that we decided that it was we were ready to start a family.
1: Okay, Hold on. I'm going to put a pin in where we are right now. We're going to come back to this. Yeah. I, I, I neglected to to come back to this this dietitian thing because here you are, and you're having some of these issues. When did it dawn on you, though, that maybe it's kind of what I'm eating that's that's the problem?
0: Really good question. So it didn't hit me for actually a while into it because it wasn't really talked about in dietetic school that much and how much food was related to our hormones and pcos and the entire fertility spectrum it was actually my work in cancer that led me to figure it out on my own for the pcos Mm. so that's kind of a whole nother story in itself
1: Uh, yeah it it really is um Okay, so back to where we were. Mm-hmm. Two years removed now from school, that was kind of where you were at. And You guys start trying at that point, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. How much trying was there?
0: Um, well, to be, so to even start the story, so I, I was placed on birth control for my PCOS when I was – I think I was 18. Okay. Um, so during that time, my acne had cleared up, and I was having regular cycles. So I wasn't thinking a whole much of it again. So I d- then we decided to get off the pill to start trying to conceive a family. Mm-hmm. And I'm a twin, so my doctor told me, just so you know, in the first month off the pill, you're at higher risk for being having twins. And my husband and I decided, well, we're willing to take that risk on. Sure. So we actually kind of had this hope and expectation that we would get pregnant relatively quickly. I think basically based on that, being a healthy weight, all of these types of things and time progressed and in that year, so that was actually 2015, I had a period I had two periods in the whole year of 2015. Wow. So we knew that was a problem right then and there because if you're not ovulating, there's no chance to get pregnant.
1: Right. And I would imagine that would was devastating talk to me about the emotions there
0: oh roller coaster emotions and the constant emotions of feeling like you're doing something wrong whether it be through diet or environmental exposures and so forth but you feel like you're the problem that something that you're doing is really hard and then especially being childbearing age and seeing all your friends get pregnant um that became very difficult because you're super happy for them, but you're also in the same right. You're very disappointed and frustrated Mm -hmm. about what's going on in your own journey. Mm -hmm. And you feel sort of like a disappointment to your husband because it's, quote unquote, your fault, not necessarily his fault. Um, But he was never like that, of course. Um, But we took it on to be our journey together, not just my journey.
1: And talk to me about those conversations that you had with him, especially initially, you know, uh, I would imagine that one that even broaching the subject with him wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do
0: yeah so actually thinking back to when we were planning on getting married and so forth i remember when we were doing some sort of marriage prep we actually went through like this questionnaire and it said one of the questions was if you aren't able to have children and then it kind of goes on will you upset at this person? Will you have resentment and so forth? And we had both answered before even knowing these were issues that if we weren't able to have children, we would still love each other and stay with our vows the rest of our life. So we knew together that we both wanted to have a family, but we had kind of talked about it before it had even happened. Mm-hmm. So that would actually eased into the, the conversation much better. And was
1: there still some apprehension, though? I mean, when when you get that reality check, like, oh, my goodness, mm -hmm. that question just got real.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because then you're starting to realize that this is actually affecting us now, you know, kind of certain diseases down the road, you think, well, that will never be me. You might just think, well, yeah, we're, we're going to get pregnant within the first few months of people, because that's what people do. And after five months had passed, six months has passed, a year had passed, and now talking about different interventions, we had to have much more serious conversations, and how that will affect my health too, in terms of the different interventions that we might have to use.
1: So what kind of interventions were you guys looking at? I assume that you're working with a doctor at that point?
0: Yeah, so we were working with an OBGYN, and not specifically a specialist, but in a um, regular OBGYN who knew that I was a dietitian and kind of wanted to take more of the natural approach as much as possible. Right. So the first thing, because I w- had PSOS, the first thing that was started was metformin, which is a diabetes medication, but it's the first line of treatment for PCOS because PCOS, a classic symptom, is insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing that was started but after starting the metformin and taking it for several months nothing really changed my periods weren't coming any more regularly and they were still lasting a long time when they did happen so they were super inconsistent right so then the next step was okay we're ready to have more intervention what is the next intervention but diet was never talked about the entire time and I was already a dietitian, so I was already researching things already on my own. But the next step was to try more medications like Provera, progesterone, and Femara. Um, some, there's other options there too, but that was the, what my doctor was talking about for me.
1: And with each one of these medications, did you get your hopes up like, man, this this is it. This is the answer we're finally going to be able to conceive at this point.
0: Yeah, I definitely thought that. I thought that there's going to be so much better chance to be able to do this. This works for other people. I've heard so many more success stories about it. This is going to be the, the next step. This is We're not going to have to go much farther than this.
1: What about the letdown when you kind of come to that realization that, nope, this pill isn't working either? <sighs>
0: It makes it so much harder because you just feel like, again, you are the one that's causing this and there's something there's something physically wrong with you as a female.
1: Were the conversations you were having with yourself in your own mind more difficult than the ones that you were having with your husband at that point? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I think I tend to be a person that's harder on myself in, in every respect. And I was very hard on myself throughout the entire process, even though I had the full support of him 100% all the time. I was very down on myself hard on myself and frustrated with myself through the whole process
1: was it hard to look in the mirror and and still have love for the person staring back at you that's a really good question
0: i think that that was definitely doubted along the way yeah Mm -hmm. i bet yeah
1: so you're going through all of these steps and you're beating yourself up mentally Mm -hmm. and at what point does it it clicked for you again. Like you say that you're starting to do this research and these medications aren't working. So clearly you need to take another approach. At what point then do you say like, Okay, well, let's start adjusting what I'm eating.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, as I mentioned before, actually, kind of the conversation in nutrition actually started with cancer. So, I'm a board certified specialist in oncology. So, I work with cancer patients day by day in the nutrition world. And I started doing a lot more of my own research in nutrition and cancer because I was very excited and wanted to learn how I can best help my cancer patients, not only while they're going through the course of treatment, but also post-treatment to help prevent their risk of recurrence. So I was learning a lot of this information that unfortunately you don't learn in dietetic school or even when I got my master's degree. And so I was taking it upon myself to learn even more of this information. And I kept learning more and more about the information related to hormones and cancer. And it started to really click for me. So I had thought to myself, well, if I'm teaching my cancer patients this, why am I not applying it to myself? So it first started for me, I started to cut meat out of my diet because meat was something that was not hard for me. I pretty much ate meat because I thought that I needed to eat it to get my protein of right course, the standard of across the yeah. board
1: where do you get your protein yep
0: exactly so and being a dietitian I did know that you could get protein from other sources but I don't think that I realized how much protein you could get from other sources so I literally said the one it was September and I said okay for the entire month of September I'm not going to eat meat just going to see what happens right. I'm going to be a vegetarian I never turned back and I remember having a conversation especially with my parents and my daddy's like no, your, your acne is kind of clearing up a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, I noticed that too. He's like, I think it's because you're not eating meat. And I go, I think you're right. But I, it was still, it was still happening. Your dad said this? My, my wow. dad said in this. Wisconsin. In
1: Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. <laughs> Let's just take a second, let that sink in.
0: Okay. Yep, exactly. So I was like, yeah, I think there really is something to this. So, and then after that, I slowly started reducing the dairy from my diet. And again, in Wisconsin. Yeah. So, and that, I don't want to say it's unheard of, but reducing dairy, that's, if, you know, we're just in this conference and everyone's saying like, every, you, how do you get rid of dairy? Well, come to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and people are definitely going to say that to you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I can't live without my cheese is what they said. And. To be honest, I never thought that I would live without dairy, but I started reducing it. Let's just say from having two glasses of milk, I would tell myself per day, I might be having two glasses of milk. I said, okay, I'm going to limit it to one. And then I slowly was very competitive with myself. Like I am in many areas (laughs) of my life. The hockey player comes back (laughs) out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so I started reducing the dairy then and I started noticing improvements. So I definitely wasn't fully plant-based, but after, so what had happened is I had taken Provera, which stimulates a period, and then you take Femara to help induce ovulation. Well, we had had one failed cycle of that. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of a complicated cycle because I started bleeding earlier than normal. So what we had said was we were going to try three cycles of that before we would go to the next intervention. Well, because I had started bleeding earlier than normal, the doctor said, well, we're we're going to have to skip the medication this cycle, and we're going to have to do a wait- Okay. So during that time, after that first failed cycle, again, kind of like you alluded to already, very frustrated, hard to look at yourself, kind of just very disappointed. I thought there has to be more that I can do. So I turned to my husband after I had done even more of my research, especially in plant-based nutrition and pregnancy to make sure that it was safe. And I said, you know, I've done all of my research. I don't need you to do it with me, but I do need your support in it. I'd like to try a plant-based diet to help achieve pregnancy. And he, of course, hands down said, absolutely. Anything that you think is going to help, let's do it. Good man. And three weeks later, I had my first ovulation in a year and a half and got pregnant that cycle.
1: Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about the, (laughs) the moment that you realize like, Oh okay, like something's different now. Like, okay. I see you smiling ear to ear, right? So I mean, walk me through that whole process. Like when did you get that inclination, like, oh my god, this this could be happening.
0: Yeah, so I started Again, like many people experience with the plant-based diet, I had more energy, I was feeling well, um, my acne was improving just little bits by little bits, and I was taking ovulation test strips every single day, and um, I had a positive one, which I had never seen. And I had been taking them for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I took a picture of it and sent it to my twin sister and said, this is positive, right?
1: (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to tell me you put that on Instagram
0: or something. (laughs) Yeah. So I sent it to my sister and of course she said, yeah, I think so. And honestly, that was, that was that. So I honestly didn't, So that was the first ovulation positive test. So that, to me, was a huge win. Even if that didn't result in pregnancy, I thought, this is a huge win. This is progress that I had never experienced before. For sure. And so then what happened is I called my doctor, told them that I had a positive ovulation test because we were still waiting to start another cycle. And so they're like, okay, just call us and update us. Well, those about two weeks had passed when you would take a pregnancy test or you would get your period. Mm -hmm. And so it was a Monday. I hadn't got my period and I had a negative pregnancy test. And they're like, well, this doesn't really make any sense. And I was like, okay. And they're like, so we're going to wait a few more days. And in my mind, more waiting. That's all that this whole game has ever been is just waiting and waiting and waiting. And so we waited a few more days. And I remember being at work, walking down the staircase thinking, something feels different I don't know what it is I can't put a finger on it but something feels different and that for some reason led me to taking a pregnancy test the next morning and that was a Friday morning and I had taken a pregnancy test and it was positive
1: okay
0: and I immediately started shaking (laughs) really yeah yeah I was I think anybody I don't I feel like any woman can relate to this, whether they had infertility or not. But even if you're trying to conceive and you find out that you have a positive pregnancy test, your first thought is, am I ready for this? (laughs) Even if you had planned on it. After all of that, you're still
1: like, Oh oh, man. Yeah, exactly.
0: So my husband was still sleeping because I always wake, woke up earlier to go to work and I, and I shook him and I said, I took a pregnancy test. Come look at it. And, he right away said that he thought that it was positive for me having come out. And the same reaction for many couples is, well, let's take another one. Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> so um, we ended up waiting a little bit while longer. And I, for some reason, didn't have to be work- into work a little bit late until a little bit later. So I took another one a couple hours later, and it was positive. And
1: that we were pregnant. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at you telling me the story now and you look like you're just like yeah. walking on air, you know, yeah. floating on clouds. Like, yeah. I can't imagine what it was like for you that day. Like, yeah. did you just feel like this huge burden had been lifted off of your shoulders.
0: Absolutely. I mean, an incredible burden had been lifted, and I wanted to tell everybody and everybody, but I waited. (laughs) I know, right? Because I think also what comes with that is that you have fear of what could happen if Mm. you you go through infertility is what is the fear of possible miscarriage because I've had these
1: trouble going forward? Mm-hmm. So, so how, I mean, how quickly did that euphoria turn to concern? And and did the concern overwhelm the, you know, positivity of the moment?
0: Right. So I think right away, I was super positive about it, super energetic about it. But then over the next couple of weeks, we hadn't, even though I had knew the date of conception based on the ovulation test, the doctor said, well, when was your last period? And I was, like five months ago. (laughs) So they couldn't determine what the date of conception was, even though I had a really good idea of what it was. So Mm -hmm. they had us go in for an internal ultrasound to figure out what the due date would be. And that was right around six weeks. So it was early. And they um, pretty much said, we're not seeing what we're supposed to be seeing right now. Oh. And 50% of this case will end in miscarriage. 50% will end in a viable pregnancy. So that was immediate concern yeah. right, of it, right okay. there. And I had still continued following the plant-based diet that I had started those three weeks before conception because I was going through pregnancy this way, and it was a lifestyle change that I decided to make. But when we left that appointment, I turned to my husband and said, I am going to be a hundred percent plant-based going forward because even though the doctor says there's nothing that you can do other than not drink alcohol and do drugs to, you know, cause this miscarriage to me, that was my, I can control this. This is something that is going to give me peace of mind Mm -hmm. going forward. Mm -hmm. And I'm very blessed and thankful to say that 10 days later, which is when you go back in for another test to check, um, they were seeing everything that they needed to see to, for a healthy pregnancy to move forward, and we did just that. We had a healthy pregnancy going forward, and there were no more scares after that, thankfully,
1: long ten days, in yeah, oh, it's the longest, yeah. yeah,
0: longer than the year and a half to get pregnant. <laughs> it's
1: difficult conversations like what if you know what yep. did you think like, okay, well, what if I miscarry here like mm-hmm. is it ever going to happen? We got so close were were you prepared to go through that entire Cycle those emotions again?
0: No, not at all. And I don't think anybody could ever be prepared. And I'm grateful to say that I never have had a make- miscarriage, but I can't imagine the emotions and all of that that comes with that. So, but you know, when we had found out that we at that six week mark that we weren't sure if it was going to be a viable pregnancy or not, we had planned on telling our families the next day. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, should we tell our family? Should we not tell our family? And we thought, well, Even if we do experience that this doesn't end up in a viable pregnancy, these are the people that we would want to help us through it. So we did go through telling them. And, you know, it was a lot of excitement at first. And we were able to tell them, you know, there was a little bit of concern, but we're going to go back. So there was a huge amount of support. Mm -hmm. And it was really great just to see everyone's reaction that we were pregnant because they knew how long we had been trying. Yeah 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 and at first our my dad but didn't even know that it was me that was pregnant. He thought it was my sister in law who <laughs> thankfully has easy time getting pregnant and so forth, so it was nice yeah. to nice change to have one of us get pregnant I
1: mean they must have bitch. Just been so happy for you. I mean, oh, so yeah. happy for you and your husband.
0: Absolutely. And um, my in-laws said that they had prepared themselves that we might not have, be able to have children. So they were very respectful in the entire process and never brought it up. So being able to tell them was super exciting um, and yeah. a really amazing experience.
1: All right. So you you, you six, six weeks now then – Let's wrap up by talking about the emotions that come seven and a half months after after those six weeks, right? Yeah, so who comes yeah. out?
0: So my daughter, Eleni, Virginia, was born, and we had an incredibly safe delivery. Um, she was five days before her due date. and everything cash everything went so good. I can't even. You know, talk about any mishaps. I guess I didn't really know what to expect entirely either, but yeah. it went pretty well against plan that I thought. And we, um, moving forward, raise our daughter plant based as well. And when it whole c- when it comes to the PCOS and the infertility issues and all the acne and hormones and everything that came with the whole process, the conversation that I've had with my husband about raising our daughter plant based has really been, if I can help. Prevent my daughter in any way from having to go through some of the things that I've had to go through. I'm I'm going to do everything and I can to help do that for her. And so, um, so we follow a hundred percent plant based diet with her, and she doesn't know any different at this point. She's almost three, and she loves it. I just love watching her pick up her garbanzo beans and just eat them just as they are and the sprouted grain breads. And it's really fun to watch.
1: So now you have this three-year-old child. Do you look at her every day and, and just like, my God, I've got a miracle here.
0: Oh, absolutely. And hands down. And I think that it was worth the wait would I, you know, that experience is still super hard to look back, but I feel like I went through it for a reason to be able to help teach other people that things that they do can help this entire process.
2: Man,
1: what a story. Yeah. What a story. And yeah. you do teach people now. That's that's the coolest I thing, do. right? I do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I do work with, um, so I have my own private practice for nutrition and I do help people with PCOS as well. Um, so I work primarily with cancer patients and autoimmune autoimmune disease patients in um, helping them with their diet to achieve the results that they're looking for. But I do see a lot of patients that are trying to achieve pregnancy as well.
1: Right. And and you've got a website, Mm wholesomellc.com. What what a fitting title.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah. Lots
1: of cool stuff on there I, I love yeah. that I just pulled up the homepage Before we started talking It was like Just this beautiful picture Of blueberries Kind of gave me a, Gave me the munchies A little bit you I know?
0: know right Yeah I just We just had um, Blueberries from Michigan We had a five pound box of them And we finished them In like four days That's
1: what I'm talking I know, about I right It's the time of year for it them.
0: Absolutely so good Well yeah. you
1: look Just so happy And so healthy And you have Such a tremendous story Allison Tierney I cannot thank you enough For coming on with us today My sincerest hope is that you can find hope from Allison, or share her story with someone in your life who is facing those same challenges. And hopefully, they too will be able to find health, and possibly even an addition to their family. So what was going on? with Allison anyway? What was going on inside of her body? What happens to a woman when she has PCOS? What causes it? And how much of this is a genetic thing? Is there any way for a woman not to suffer the same fate as her mother and her grandmother, or maybe even her sisters? Well, as we heard, the answer to that is a resounding yes. So let's take a deeper dive to find out why. And for that, we will be turning to a man who has spent the better part of the last two years researching the connection between food and hormones and how those hormones can relate to conditions like PCOS and infertility. It's time to take a look at some nutrition science with Dr. Neil Barnard. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee, special edition as we look at the new book, Your Body Imbalanced, The New Science of Food, Hormones, and Health, sitting across from the author of that book right now. Dr. Neil Barnard, thanks for joining us again.
2: Thank you, Chuck. Great to be here.
1: We just heard from Allison Tierney, who shared this remarkable story, uh, her struggle and overcoming it, her triumph with PCOS. We heard what we, she went through, but I would also love to hear from you a little bit more about what was actually going on on inside of her what is PCOS can you give us a a background
2: Uh, PCOS uh, polycystic ovary syndrome has been uh, a real mystery for a lot of a lot of women and their doctors and it was 1935 that a couple of doctors said okay I think I think we've we've got a a syndrome here that we can identify disparate symptoms all cluster together Uh, the periods are irregular um, as Allison described as well um, skin changes. And when I say skin changes, you, can fi- you might discover that you've got acne, or you might have a little facial hair or body hair that you don't want. Um, and the third thing is polycystic ovaries, um, that if on exam, on laparoscopic exam, you look at the ovaries, you see these little cysts on them. Now, not every woman has all of these three symptoms, but they, they, they may, or they, or they may have some of them. And the question was, why? runs in families. So there's a genetic component. But it turns out what they what all these things have in common is that they are driven by androgens. Androgens are the group of male sex hormones. So a woman has just a little extra male sex hormone. As you know, all men, all women have both male and female sex hormones, right. in, different, in different amounts. We all have them all. And in this case, the, the deck was shuffled just to give a little bit extra male sex hormone in a, woman, in, in a woman. And so that causes a little bit of the facial hair, a little bit of the acne, and then the ovulation goes a little goofy. Um, so that was her situation, is that she had this. And it took a long time before the diagnosis was clear. And um, so for many women, that's kind of the end of the story. Um, they're having lots of fertility issues. They're, um, they will often have weight gain. Uh, and uh, as time goes on, they they may be subjected to all kinds of treatments, as Allison described as well, sure. that, that may not work so well.
1: Yeah, that search for the answer, I mean, that, that took some time for her. And you mentioned that um, it, it may run in families. What is the genetic component there? Because one of the things that she said in her interview was that, virtually every woman in her family had trouble with her menstrual cycle. So when she started to have trouble, she really didn't think much of it. So what is that genetic component there?
2: Yeah, Um, there is uh, the DNA that's the blueprint for every cell in your body um, codes um, the machinery for making testosterone and other androgens. It also codes for making estrogens, estradiol, estrone, estriol. And if the genes that you have code for making just a little bit extra testosterone, not a lot, um, you're still a woman, but you just get that little extra, then that leads to PCOS. So, so it's, it's, it's a, a genetic trait that people are born with.
1: How much of this is driven by diet?
2: Some of it is, is well, the genes have nothing to do with diet. You've got the genes or you don't. Right. But um, certain other aspects of the diet can make it worse. And then if you change those, like Allison did, you can get, they can be better. Uh, the first thing is, is weight loss. Now, Allison was pretty slim already. Mm-hmm. But for many women with PCOS, they're a little bit overweight. And if they lose weight, this, the syndrome improves a lot um, for many of them. Secondly, um, you and I have talked a little bit about how foods affect hormones. Yeah. And if a woman increases the fiber in her diet, the estrogen that's in her blood will be more effectively removed by the body. The liver filters the blood. And it will remove excess estrogens, send them into the intestinal tract, and fiber grabs a hold of them and, and literally flushes them away. Yep. So if a woman's on a typical American diet, she's not getting a lot of fiber.
1: Isn't the, the, the average person getting less than 10 grams of fiber per day?
2: It varies a lot from 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 one person to another, but the it, it goes exactly with how much cheese are you eating, how much meat are you eating, how much chicken, <laughs> how much fish, because animal products ha- don't have fiber. Right, right. So if a person th- thinks, oh, gee, I want to have uh, salmon for lunch, or, or I want to have chicken breast, or I want to have steak, those are zero fiber foods. Sure. So returning the fiber to the diet helps, but also reducing fat helps. Um Fat builds, um, fat will interfere with, with hormonal functions. So um, what ALISA did is exactly the thing that everybody would, would hopefully be counseled to do, which is get the animal products out of the diet and keep the oils low and follow a really healthy diet of vegetables of fruits and whole grains and beans. And what this will tend to do is get the hormones back into a better balance. And, and there's one other piece of this. Yeah. Blood sugar control gets goofy in PCOS. And we're not entirely sure why that is. But along with these other symptoms that, that I described, blood sugar will often rise as well. And so if blood sugar is rising, then women will think, oh my goodness sakes, this will put me at risk for diabetes. So we c- what's the best way to control blood sugar? A low-fat plant-based diet. Um, not what many women have been told to do, which is avoid carbohydrate. Um, that's just dealing with a symptom. The the answer to it is getting the fat out of the diet because when you do that, you get the fat out of the cells. Right. The muscle cells and liver cells, as you and I have discussed in previous shows. When you get the fat out of the cells, then insulin can work on the cells again.
1: I doubt that there have been actual studies on this, but I'm going to ask the question anyway because the diet that's out there right now that everybody seems to be raving about is keto, which is extremely high in animal proteins typically, but very very low in fiber. So, if a woman is turning to a keto diet thinking that that's the healthiest thing that's going to, you know, help her lose weight and all of that, it seems to me like that doesn't, you know, bode well for her chances of avoiding
2: this um, short-term benefits, long-term disaster. Um, when, when women go on a ketogenic diet um, or men, uh, what happens is they're, they're, they're told to avoid carbohydrate. Right. And uh, if you avoid all carbohydrate, your body is basically starving for carbohydrate. So to keep your brain functioning, your body makes ket- what are called ketones. And you, in fact, if a person's on this diet, you could smell them. It's kind of this acetone smell mm. come, that comes out of their body. Um, but that k- kills the appetite, and so then people will lose weight because they're just not eating very much. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's how it works. Um, I mean, that, so the problem with it is you're eating uh, no carbohydrate, so so you're not getting the benefit of fruits. You're not eating apple. You feel guilty if you have a papaya, you know. Yeah. Um, so they're not eating apples or bananas or any of those kinds of healthy things. Uh, they're not eating starchy vegetables. Uh, they're not eating beans. They're not eating whole grains. They're not eating fiber sources in most cases, um, or not or not very much. And so s- several bad things happen. Um, over the longer term, cholesterol levels tend to rise. Mm. Now, normally when a person loses weight, no matter how they – if you just starve, you, you know, you're going to lose you, – you, when you lose weight, your cholesterol will drop. Right. And that happens with ketogenic diets for many people. Just weight loss lowers cholesterol. But about – Maybe thirty percent or more have a cholesterol rise, and sometimes it's a heroic rise because they're eating meat and they're you know they're eating cheese and right and, the, and other carbohydrate free foods that are really bad for you
1: and, and the body that's its primary source of fuel isn't it carbohydrates right. right
2: well if yes, if a person is running a marathon, what do they do leading up to the marathon? They carbo-load. right um, they're eating bread and so forth because they want to put glycogen in their liver and in their muscle cells that's that's stored glucose. And so if you are not eating those foods, you're, you're, you're glycogen depleted. In, in fact, by the way, that's one of the tricks that people use when, in promoting this ketogenic diet. Um, when, you, when you stop eating carbohydrate, your body loses all of that glycogen. Um, you, you, loo- you lose your spare batteries. Glycogen stores water. So when the, the first few days on a ketogenic diet, you're burning up that glycogen. And all the water that's associated with it, you're peeing it out. So you'll, you, if you pay attention, you'll notice that you're in the bathroom a lot. And then on the scale, you're losing weight. That's not fat. That's water loss mm. uh, for the first, uh, what, three four days. Uh,
1: wow. Interesting stuff. I want to circle back a little bit to PCOS uh, as as we kind of wrap things up here. We were talking about the average person not getting enough fiber, but the high-fiber foods that they should be eating, is there a target for how many grams we should be trying to eat each day? I
2: would aim for 40. Um, now, uh, a typical sort of health-conscious person um, who's eating more vegetables and fruits it might be reaching 20, something like that. But if you if you just get rid of the animal products, you're not crowding out the vegetables and beans anymore. They're, everything you eat has fiber. So that'll bring you to 40, 50 something like that.
1: Well, maybe if, if you eat your 40 or 50 grams a day, you wouldn't have to deal with this. But I had a friend who was telling me that if you have PCOS as a woman, uh, you're actually at a risk, even though you're a woman, of having male pattern baldness. So we've yeah. talked about acne and excess hair, but can a woman get male pattern baldness?
2: Absolutely. Um, She has the same genes as her brother has with regard to hair loss. The the difference is her hormones, if she has uh, normal estrogen levels and very low testosterone, she will not get bald. So the problem is that in in, um, PCOS, that extra androgen activity can cause hair loss. Um, And frankly, this can happen in women who may gain weight and they develop some insulin resistance. And you'll see uh, diffuse hair loss, particularly at the top of of the head. Um, That can get better. Um, with a diet change. By the way, we've talked about a plant-based diet. Researchers have also looked into certain foods, and too early to to make a promise on this one, but soy products have been used in a helpful way. Uh, Canadian researchers uh, used soy products, uh, a variety of foods, but it was the equivalent of about two cups of soy milk per day Mm -hmm. in women with PCOS. What they discovered is that their hormones got into better balance, they had better weight loss, their blood sugars came under better control, and so did their androgens. So uh, stay tuned. But what we think is is the the solution: plant based diet, keep oils low, foods in as natural a state as possible, because that that allows you to get the full fiber that you need. And there might be a, a special role for soy, and you can have organic soy. If it's organic, it cannot be. GMO, Mm -hmm. and uh, you might add it to your diet. I think that there might be women listening to this
1: right now who are like, wait a minute, I've been told not to eat soy because it increases my risk of breast cancer. What do we know about that?
2: Uh, Urban myth. Um, Back in 1931, something like that, researchers discovered what are called isoflavones in in soy products, and they're there. Isoflavones are natural compounds in in soybeans and, and other foods too. They attach to estrogen receptors on, say, a breast cell, and so then people, th- when that was discovered, some people thought, "Well, that means that I'll get breast cancer if I eat tofu." And you'll see this all over the internet. You know, uh, don't have soy; it will it will increase the risk of cancer. If you've had cancer already, it will make it progress. Or if you're a man, the soy will give you man boobs. <laughs> you, you, you've, you, you, you've heard all this. Yes. Um, I have. Well. Let me say we've had enough time to study this. Um, and if you go to the beach in August and you find a man who's taken his shirt off and he's a little chunky and he's got a little bit of breast. Development. He's got man boobs. Uh, you might actually ask him how much tofu has he had this week. <laughs> and what, what I'm going to suggest is he does not eat tofu. He eats pizza and burgers and fries and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and the, the reason that he has man boobs is not because he's having miso soup. Ha- yeah
1: having been that man, I can assure you there is no tofu in that <laughs> diet
2: <laughs> anyway the, the the reason The reason that he 'd got breast development was that first of all, as a man gains weight um, the the body fat cells eat e- fat cells make estrogens. Mm. And so the more body fat he's accumulating, the more estrogen he'll have, and that causes a little bit of, of actual breast development. It's not just body fat. He'll actually have some breast tissue. And if he follows a healthy diet and loses weight, that all goes away. Um, but now the big issue is, is breast cancer. Uh, it turns out, uh, part- particularly if you study eight women in Asia, where women will consume a lot of soy, Um, compared to America where it's not such a big part of the diet, or or Asian-American women who very often have soy milk, um, tofu, uh, tempeh, these kinds of things, what you discover is that the more soy is in the diet, the lower the risk of breast cancer. Right. So that the women who consume the most have roughly 30% less... Likelihood of developing breast cancer, and then if you, there have been a number of studies on women who have had breast cancer and they've been treated for it. It turns out that those women who eat the most soy have about a thirty percent reduction in mortality. Wow! So, so this old idea of avoiding soy products to protect the, protect uh, the breast, it's exactly the opposite. Soy is protective. Now you don't have to have it. It's totally optional. You know, a plant based diet is not the soybean cheerleading club, but um, but soy doesn't cause cancer. If anything, it it helps prevent it.
1: That's so interesting to me. These, these urban myths run amok, you know, even though the science says completely the opposite. Well,
2: well the science is clear. I mean, there's not, there's not a scientific debate about this. Um, when you look at the research on, on soy and breast cancer, it is very clear that soy helps reduce the risk of breast cancer, and it reduces the risk of progression. And those well-meaning but ill-informed, sometimes oncologists – We'll say, well, now that you've been diagnosed with cancer, uh, avoid soy. They read that in a magazine somewhere. It's not true. Um, avoiding soy does not help at all. If anything, it, it aggravates the problem.
1: Any final thoughts on PCOS?
2: Um, even though it's genetic, th- th- there's a g- genetic trait. Genes are not destiny. Genes, ex- the expression of genes depends on environmental factors. In this case, diet is a critical one.
1: Well, this has just been a fascinating conversation. And I know that uh, with the new book here, Your Body and Balance, you're going to be out on tour. Mm-hmm giving lectures, bookstores. You're all over the place. pcrm.org booktour is the place to go to see if uh, Dr. Barnard will be in a city near you. I'm sure that when you're out there and you're talking, you're going to have more conversations just like this.
2: Well, I hope so, because up until now, people thought, well, to change my diet, I would do it if I was overweight, I would do it if I had diabetes or high cholesterol. The, the, the reason I wrote Your Body in Balance is because it's not just those things. It's everyday problems. You've got menstrual cramps, You've got endometriosis. Your mood is bad. Your energy level is low. All of these are hormonally driven. And let's dial our hormones back into health and we can do it by, food, by selecting the right foods.
1: Dr. Barnard, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you, Chuck. Always such enlightening research when Dr. Barnard comes on the show, isn't it? And so now we know that nutrition can play a critical role in keeping our hormones healthy. So let's talk a little bit more about that food that keeps that nutrition in tip-top shape. And for that, we will be turning to the masterful recipe whiz behind the menu in Your Body Imbalance. Balance. You may know her as the Happy Herbivore. I know her as Lindsay Nixon. Lindsay's been here in recent weeks to share some of the 60-plus recipes from the book. And we've been going through the recipes, really, from day two of the 14-day menu that is in there. And so far, we've covered breakfast, and we've covered lunch. And what does that leave? Dinner, of course. And tonight, we are going to be serving up one of the all-time favorites, because you can't go wrong with pizza, right? right. Lindsay has whipped up a delicious recipe for Moroccan pizzas that is sure to put a shine on the face of everyone at the table. So you hungry? Let's dig in. If your stomach is grumbling, you are in luck because it is now dinner time here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee, as we continue the very special Your Body and Balance series. Now, if you've been listening for the past number of weeks, you are familiar with Lindsay Nixon. She is the recipe strategist for this entire book. She is also the creator of the very first plant based meal plan service can download the app meal mentor you can also find her other cookbooks the happy herbivore series and check her out on happyherbivore.com i am now happy to say that she is a close personal friend and my personal chef even though she doesn't know that yet but <laughs> Lindsay nixon welcome back to the exam room
3: i know I, I often wonder like does this here? i just need me to move in and be the chef for everyone because i do it um anyway
1: i mean I'm I'm so i will excited. get in somebody's ear about that right now we will make yeah, that happen
3: yeah. <laughs> neil and i wouldn't get anything done because we just email each other all day anyway
1: you know it's a <laughs> it's a fun job right at least we'd be smiling and we would never go hungry uh all right so here we go we have done the butternut tacos for breakfast Delicious. Then we had for lunch the Mediterranean croquettes with the tzatziki sauce and the bayou quinoa, and now we have ourselves everybody's favorite for dinner. Lindsay, we're talking about pizza. Specifically here, though, we're going a little fancy. We're talking about Moroccan pizza. What what have you whipped up for us?
3: So um, I mentioned in I think the lunch podcast that my husband really could eat a bean burger every single meal, and that's how I came up with the croquettes. Mostly because. I was doing a new flavored bean burger and didn't have buns, so it became a croquette with sauce. But um, the other thing he wants to eat all the time are these like mini pizzas, which we take a whole wheat pit of bread and put stuff on top of them and then put them in the toaster oven or the regular oven, and you have like a- an instant pizza that's really healthy. And so that's the other thing he would eat every day, all day, every day. But I get tired <laughs> of eating the same thing, so it's like, how can I make? different, And I happen to really love Moroccan food. We went to Morocco on our honeymoon. And so I was like, all right, let's create one of these little pita pizzas with some Moroccan vegetable seasonings and flavors. And so that's what I did. But I also wanted it to be like a pizza. So I used my pizza cheese sauce. And the cool thing about this is it doesn't have any nuts. And it's just made from like um, soy milk or almond milk, whatever you want, and some some spices, you just whisk it together. But the cool part is, is when you put it on your pizza and you bake it in the oven, it actually makes a cheese.
1: Whoa.
3: Yeah, like it actually like thickens up to like this really nice cheese and it has a really nice mouth texture. And so I use it when I make any pizza, but I really love it with the Moroccan pizza. And so, I mean, you could, like I said, you could do whatever flavor you want, but well, I like the Moroccan and it keeps it different because, you know, the standard pizza is good, but you kind of get bored with it. At least I do. Um, but I also like to always have a salad at dinner. Like I usually have a salad at lunch too, but I always want to make sure I have a salad at dinner. Like I'm really ending my day with like lots of nutrients, especially cause you know, we're getting ready to not eat food until the next day. And so, especially with the pizza, I like to pair a salad with it. And so in the book, I paired a garden, my, just a basic garden salad and my easy vinaigrette recipe. So I get really put off by, like, ingredients lists that are this long on dressing bottles. I'm just like, I don't understand why there's so many. Um, and so I just make a really simple dressing that's basically vinegar. And you can use whatever vinegar you like, balsamic, apple cider, whatever. A little Dijon mustard because it's my favorite condiment ever. And then I use either maple syrup or jam. And in the book, I used peach jam to make like a peach vinaigrette because I think it was summertime when I was writing it. And But you could use other jams, you know, strawberry, whatever. Or like I said, maple. And it's just this three ingredient, whisk it together, and you have a dressing. Like Whoa. four seconds later, and it doesn't have all those weird ingredients in it. It's just three. So... That was why I did that dressing because I just – I'm like, you guys don't have to eat all those weird preservatives if you don't want to because I know Neil talks a lot of in the book about how all that filler stuff can be really hard on the body. And so I wanted people to have a really simple dressing solution.
1: Do you make that every time that uh, you need it or do you make it in batches and it keeps in the fridge?
3: Both. Um, like during the holidays or when we have guests, I make like a big bottle. Like I like 10 times it out. But, um, normally just like on an any given day, I'll usually make it fresh cause it's really quick and I'll pick the, what I want. Like, I'll be like, Oh, what else do I want with this? Um, different times of the year. So for example, if it's summer and there's strawberries, I'll make a strawberry vinaigrette versus like in the winter right now, I've been doing more blueberries cause that's about the only seasonal fruit I can get <laughs> other than apples, other than apples. But, um, yeah, but you can make a, you can load it up and make a nice big bottle all the dressings in the book, actually, I think you could probably make a big bottle for.
1: Does it keep pretty well?
3: Yeah. That's the great thing about things like jam and vinegar. They just like hold forever. And mustard, too. Mustard's really stable. Um, you do need to refrigerate it. But yeah, it'll hold for you in the fridge. Awesome. Vinegar's like a is nat- its a natural preservative instead of all those weird ones that we can't pronounce.
1: um so real quick here before we wrap this up i want to ask you a little bit more about this pizza cheese sauce i'm looking down at the ingredients list and one of the things that i've noticed in in talking to you these past few weeks is that you know these these ingredients lists are relatively simple here it's you don't have Mm -hmm. to be you know a graduate of the cordon bleu to know how to put this stuff together
3: that was a big thing for me when i first went um Vegan, there weren't really any other vegan cookbooks out there. There were like one or two from the 60s or 70s that were more vegetarian than vegan. And then I would find one or I'd find a website and they would use these ingredients that I couldn't find where I lived or they were really expensive. I love to tell a story how I was making this recipe and it called for pomegranate molasses. And after I went to seven different stores, I finally found it. It was really expensive. I think at the time, this was 15 years ago, it was like seven or eight dollars. And I made the dish, and it was great, but then no other recipe in the whole whole book used it. And it was the kind of dish that you couldn't make all the time. And I subsequently moved from New York City to Los Angeles. No, from Boston to Los Angeles, back to New York City, and then to somewhere else. And I took that pomegranate molasses with me because I was like, I'm going to use it. (laughs) <laughs> and then I think after like, I don't know, six or seven years and only using half the bottle, it, it was very clearly time to let it go. But I was like, I'm going to use it. So that experience stayed with me. So I was a poor student at the time. And so I tried to use like these normal ingredients that everyone already has in their kitchen. And whether you live in a big city or a really rural town like me, you can get it. Like, you can have access to it. I mean, now with Amazon and stuff, it's a lot easier. But still, it's just like I want to use normal things, everyday stuff.
1: Last question here. How much of a time investment are we talking about to make the pizza and the salad?
3: So the salad is as fast as you can, you know, chop your veggies. But if you're buying, like, you know, pre-salad mix in a bag and stuff like that, that's instant, just putting it in a bowl. The dressing itself takes a minute to whisk at most. Um, And as for the pizza sauce... I'd say all said and done, 10 minutes, super fast.
1: That is super fast. And uh, I will tell you, one of the things that I really like about the recipes in this book is that it lays out all of the nutritional information out there as well. Right. And I think that with this book and it being you know um, so early in the new year, you, you have a lot of people who are just graduating over to that plant-based diet for the first time. And that question that we always get asked, Lindsay, is where do you get your protein from? And I can right. tell you right now, Proteinaholics, that uh, the Moroccan pizza, uh, each serving has 14 grams of protein. So you will not be going without.
3: No, you won't. And it's that's one of the things that really amazed me because people would ask me that and I would start to worry like, oh, gosh, should I be worried about this? But then I would look up and see apples have protein and kale has protein. I mean – yes, I knew nuts and beans had it, but I was like, it's in everything. Even if there's only a salad vegetable on my plate, there's still protein there.
1: That's so cool. All right. You are, you are just a delight. Lindsay Nixon, you are the best. Check her out. Happyherbivore.com. And of course, of course, of course, pick up the new book, Your Body Imbalance. Lindsay Nixon, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Almost 70 recipes are in the book, including those delicious pizzas and the peach vinaigrette dressing. And so if you are in the cooking mood, we've posted some other recipes up on pcrm.org/slash your body imbalance, including the butternut breakfast tacos that were featured for breakfast on day two of the menu. You know, the ones that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So head over there to check out that recipe. And of course, we've also dropped a link to that in the episode notes for this show. And when you head over to that page or click that link, scroll down toward the bottom there, and that is where you will find that deliciousness that awaits you. And in the book itself, you can get all 14 days, the full two-week menu, and a ton of other recipes that aren't yet posted on the website. And there is a link to order your copy of Your Body and Balance in the episode notes below as well. Or you can simply head over to Amazon or stop by your favorite bookstore to pick up your copy. And if you have any questions about the show today, maybe about PCOS or anything nutrition related please feel free to reach out to us. I'm on Twitter at Chuck WLC. That's also good for Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook and shoot me a message there. And the Physicians Committee is at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee spelled out on the gram. And right now, if you want that more personal touch, that face-to-face feel, that's cool too, because Dr. Barnard is traveling all over the country as part of the Your Body Imbalance Balance book tour. He's bringing all of this information and hope, hopefully, to a city near you. So we've already got dozens of dates on the calendar with more being added all of the time so if you'd like to hear him speak see if he's coming to a town near you you can check out the full schedule right now at pcrm.org book tour and you best believe that we've also put a link to that in the episode notes below and also make sure that you subscribe to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee on apple podcast and really wherever shows are available so that not only Can you be among the first to get these special nutrition science-related episodes as part of the Your Body and Balance series? But also, it's a great way to help bring this life-saving and even life-changing information into someone else's life because when you subscribe and you leave that five-star rating it helps our rankings then climb in apple podcast and the higher those rankings go the more people will discover the show the more publicity we'll get and that helps us go a very long way towards spreading this healthy message and to helping someone else lead a healthier life so if you could subscribe and leave that five-star rating you would be doing us and the next person a tremendous favor. And that's going to do it for us today as we continue the Your Body Imbalance Balance series. At least one more show still to go with more science and more hope. My thanks to Allison Tierney and to Lindsey Nixon for joining us today. And of course, to Dr. Neil Barnard for bringing the nutrition science and a whole lot of knowledge to the table. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening.